This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the hosting provider I use for devchat.tv. I also use it for my applications that manage the RSS feeds, scheduling, and sponsorships involved in delivering these shows. DigitalOcean is easy to use, has data centers all over the world, and provides terrific services including server hosting and object storage for delivering your web applications and assets quickly and easily. I use DigitalOcean because I love their interface. I get SSD storage for my servers and their support replies quickly. So go check them out at DigitalOcean.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My JavaScript Story. This week, we're talking to Troy Hunt. Troy, do you want to say hi? Hello, everyone. This is Troy Hunt from Australia. Yeah, we had you on episode 201. We talked about security, which is always an interesting topic and always kind of an ever-changing area, right, where you have different things mm. that people are worried about. And uh, I think we talked about, what, Stuxnet and... You know, things like that that, you know, I, I guess are still out there, but just aren't the primary concern these days. There's always someone breaking something. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, to be honest, like that's, I, I was going to say that's what I like about the industry, but that would have sounded a, a little bit insensitive. It's not so much people breaking things that I like. It's the fact that it is so ever-changing and dynamic, and I, I just don't know what I'm going to see when I get up each day, and that's kind of cool. Yep, Definitely. It's it's interesting because when I talk to security experts, generally it's, okay, these are the things I'm worried about today, but a lot of the things, 90% of the things that you can do to mitigate security issues are things that you should be doing anyway. <laughs> and and they're just kind of general principles. And then it's, and then be aware of all of the other stuff that's coming down the pike. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and this is the thing. I, I think there's a, that sort of general awareness is important, but the recognition that it is just such a moving beast for want of a better term is also important and I, I, I think back even to things of the last two weeks and there are, are security positions by browsers for example that have changed in the last couple of weeks there's been some very important security precedents that have happened in the last couple of weeks and and this is something that that we do need to sort of I guess try our best to be across yep absolutely well this show is focused a little bit differently we don't talk as much about the code and the technology and things like that we focus on the person and so we'll just start out at the very beginning and talk about how you got into programming. Yeah, well, it's it's sort of an interesting background because it, it wasn't really my intention. In fact, I remember when I was probably 12 years old, I was really not too keen on the whole computer thing. <laughs> and, and, you know, like we're talking probably late 80s now as well for a sense of context. And I remember being in, in primary school and, and my, my mates would uh, would be wanting to, to play on the computer. I'm like, no, nah, I want to go out and kick the football or, you know, do something like that. Wanted to be very active. And it was only when I, I, I think I was probably about 14, 15, uh, we moved to the Netherlands from our, our home in Australia. And it gets pretty cold <laughs> over in the Netherlands. So I was spending a lot of time indoors. And yeah, that, that gave me access to a computer, which, which my parents had bought one at the time. And it, it just kind of went from there. So it was starting to play around. And I, I suspect that's how many people get into software development in general. It's like, look, I, I got my hands on the family PC and it kind of went from there. And I, I guess in terms of proper professional programming per se, for me, it, it sort of really started to hit in 95 when I first got on the internet. I started university that year. And I was like, wow, this is really awesome. Like you can just sit anywhere in the world and build web pages and anyone anywhere can see them. Like this is absolutely amazing. Uh, and even today, 23 years on, like that concept just still blows my mind. I think it's so cool. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting how, you know, some things have changed and some things haven't, you know, just like we were talking about with security. It's 
it's a different world, and it's a different world pretty much every day we come at it. So, You know, the interesting thing about it, I've still got the book that I bought when I started getting into web development, and it was HTML for Dummies, and it was, you know, one of these sort of classic yellow for Dummies books. Yeah. And you look back on it now and go, yeah, I still use a hell of a lot of that. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like it's it's all still HTML, right? It's just got more stuff on top of it. Yep, absolutely, especially with the front-end frameworks and all of the other things that we fight about in the JavaScript world these days? Well, it's, it's funny. I, I think in some ways we've kind of lost track, or certainly some people lost track of the fact that it still is just HTML and JavaScript and yep. HTTP under the covers. And with, it's a combination of, I guess, having a lot of these sort of SaaS sort of on-demand models where you just drag and drop and build your website and also having a lot of frameworks that obfuscate things away. And uh, yeah, I, I find it interesting, even when speaking to people working with with things like client side frameworks, you know, such as the Angulars of the world, w- where they they've sort of come into development into that paradigm and have missed like some of the real fundamentals about the fact that look, this is just making HTTP requests, you know, and you're returning angle brackets and curly braces, <laughs> like that. That's the bare bones of it, and it's still the same today as it was 20 plus years ago. Yep. So how did you get into web development and uh, JavaScript in particular? So, yeah, web development, again, we're back sort of 95 era here. When I was at university, I was sort of doing some part-time work helping people get on the Internet. And I I think uh, I was charging about 18 bucks an hour or something. And, you know, I was, what was I, you know, without giving my age away too much, late teens <laughs> at the time. And this was very much sort of, you know, here's how to set up your modem and, you know, connect your Windows 95 PC onto the Internet and do stuff. And occasionally people would sort of say, okay, well, how do I actually have a web page on the Internet? And that sort of led me down that path. And as I was doing this, I got involved with uh, with some folks that actually wanted some proper software written, uh, and they wanted software written uh, for some horse racing programs they were doing. And that turned out to be a disaster in other ways, but it <laughs> gave me the opportunity to actually write software. And yeah, you know, most of that was sort of classic kind of CGI implementation sort of stuff. Doing a lot in C actually, not even C plus plus C and HTML front end. And I think the JavaScript side of things for me really hit in probably 99 when I moved to uh, to the UK for a year, as Australians tend to do at that age. Uh, and I was working uh, for, a, for a bank uh, and I was doing the front end implementation for a bank called Kahoot, which still exists today. So I did the first version of that along with a, a team of other people. And part of, of that implementation was that we did an interactive TV version. Uh, and this was when people thought, you know, we're going to do all of our internet stuff on TV, which hasn't really turned out the way we thought about it at the time. But a huge amount of the development there was JavaScript. And that was sort of, I guess, the very first time that I got to use JavaScript in anger and, and spend a lot of my time writing it. Nice. So what have you done with JavaScript that you're particularly proud of then? I'm not very proud of much of my JavaScript these days. <laughs> I answered that a bit too quickly, didn't I? Um, look, you know, I think there's a few things. So looking back on it, the interactive TV stuff I was kind of proud of. And in fact, I moved back to Australia in middle of 2000 and continued doing interactive TV for a company in Sydney. And, and we did the first interactive TV rollout in Australia, and I remember building things like the Pizza Hut application, which was effectively all JavaScript that would run on the client, uh, and then there'd be a very, very small amount of, of sort of server-side callbacks to send the orders. Uh, and I was pretty proud of that at the time because that was sort of – it was a new paradigm. We weren't really putting code on TVs like that, so that was kind of neat. 
So I, I think that was um, that was probably the thing that stands out to me the most. Uh, I guess sort of you know fast forward through where are we eighteen years onwards, and I still use a lot of JavaScript, but I tend to. I guess I tend to have a combination of falling back on frameworks. So on things like my Have I Been Pwned project, it uses some jQuery uh, to orchestrate a bunch of different typical jQuery things, asynchronous calls, positions, and things like that. And then I've sort of dropped back down a little bit to, to more kind of vanilla raw JavaScript for my blog where I've tried to make everything super, super light and super, super fast. But it's it's mostly just basic things in those princi- in those um, contexts. And i I got to say, I'm pretty – in awe when I see some of the other things that people are doing these days and, and how far that's come from what we we're doing when I was really using it in anger. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, you're somewhat better known for security these days as opposed to web development. And I'm curious, uh, how did you get into security? Like what, what made you make that change? Well, for me, it was security, I guess, was always sort of an implicit part of development. It's a little bit like performance, if you like, or code quality or other things where it's like, like this is just stuff that you should do along with actually building and delivering the thing that you've been engaged to do. Uh, so that was always part of it. And then as I was sort of progressing, I moved into a, a, an architecture role when I was working for Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. And this is probably, probably going back about 10 years ago, I'd say. And I, I started seeing a lot of the work that we'd outsource because they'd basically just outsource everything. We got rid of all the all the developers because apparently they're expensive and they cost money and they don't deliver value. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's another discussion. So um, they were outsourcing <laughs> yeah. everything. And I would just see this egregiously bad code come back. And in every measurable metric, everything from the quality of the code itself through to security, and I was finding myself explaining basic security principles over and over and over again to the point where I was like, well, I should just start putting them in a blog. And I had started a blog. I started writing my blog in 2009. And as we, I think it was pretty much as I got into early 2010, it started to take this sort of security-orientated approach. And it was very much just, here's security for developers. Because there's a lot of security for security people and a lot of mm-hmm. security sort of from security people, which doesn't resonate uh, with with the folks actually building systems. So I really took that approach of saying, look, you know, f- for you folks who let's say live in the ASP.NET land and you're using web forms to build an application in this particular way, here's how the security works. You know, here's how it goes wrong and here's lots of examples of it. And I think people really gravitated towards that. And here's how to do it right. And it looked like it was not a plan to be where I am now doing what I'm doing now, but it just organically grew in that direction. Right. So what are you working on now? Well, today, so today is a good day to ask, actually. So today, at the time of recording, is the 22nd of Feb uh, in Australia. We're in the future here. And I launched my version two of Pwned Passwords. So in August last year, I released 320 million passwords, uh, all SHA-1 hash, so they had a little bit of pseudo anonymity there. I released them so that organizations who were allowing people to register on their services could check when someone registers, changes a password, even logs in to see if their password had previously appeared in a data breach. And they could then take that data set and say, for example, look, uh, you shouldn't use this password. It's previously been breached. We're going to ask you to use a different one. So that went out in August, 320 million passwords. Just a few hours ago, I launched version two, which is now just over half a billion passwords. It's cool when you get to say the B word. So I had to get it over (laughs) half. (laughs) So there's that. So you can download those, integrate them into your own system. 
And I also did a bunch of work with Cloudflare on an anonymity model, uh, which they'd been working on, which allows you to uh, take a password that someone wants to search on, uh, create a SHA-1 hash of that, grab the first five characters of the hash and query my data set with just the first five characters. Uh, And what that means is I don't know what the entire password hash is. So even if I manage to crack the hash, it's like, well, it could be any one of hundreds of different hashes. So what I then do is I return a response which has got on average about 480 odd uh, hash suffixes, so the rest of the hash, and then the consumer can compare that to theirs and say, okay, well, if I find a match, then that's this password was in the data set. Uh, and this is really, really super cool because it means that organizations have an API they can hit to check whether a password has been breached before, and then they can decide what action they should take without being too worried about the impact of the anonymity of the password. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I always wondered, yeah, you know, so people get individual warnings, right? Hey, you know, your your password was breached. I mean, I used LastPass and they're always, you know, hey, your your email address was, you know, listed in this breach. But beyond that, yeah, I don't know that people are really prompted to do anything about it. And so that makes sense where you have a program that, you know, you're trying to use and it, it tells you to do something different instead. Yeah, so we need to sort of try and find this balance, right, where we need to, I guess, first of all, recognize that the vast majority of people don't really think about security. Uh, You know, maybe it's changing a little bit because people are online more, but for the most part, they don't think about reusing the same password or password strength. It's just like, look, the dog's got a cool name that will do, and I'm going to use that everywhere. Uh, So, you know, it's not a conscious thing. So we we need to give opportunities to, to raise awareness of this, I'm hesitating a little bit because we've got to be conscious too that we also want to make systems usable. And as much as I'm the security guy, like I want people to sign up and use systems. You know, I don't want to just put barriers up there. I've had people say, you should always have a minimum length of 12 characters for a password. It's like, well, you know, that's great, but do you like customers? (laughs) Because that's going to turn a lot of people off from most types of websites. Uh, incidentally, the most common password length when I went through and, uh, and recently checked the top 100 websites is a minimum length of six characters. So you know, a little fact tip there for everyone. So, you know, we've got to sort of be conscious about giving people enough advice. So saying, for example, look, this is a bad password. It's been in a data breach, uh, but also possibly not blocking the full half billion that I've just provided because that actually makes things very hard usability wise. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Well, that that's really exciting. And uh, if people want to go use that uh, service in their application. How do they get that? So just head over to haveibeenpwned.com. There is a passwords link in the nav and then it tells you all about it there. So you can either search for them online there. You can download them from there. There's a link off to the API documentation as well about how to consume it from your own app. You can consume it uh, client-side via JavaScript. It fully supports calls as well. So you can always just integrate it directly into your app if you like. And the really cool thing is, I'm really happy with this, it's behind Cloudflare and Cloudflare really aggressively caches everything. So I've had people today saying, I did a search for my password and you're meant to have half a billion, but it responded in 20 milliseconds. What's wrong? Are you cheating? (laughs) No, I'm just using the technology. Yep. So do you have any stories of people doing crazy kind of, I don't want to say stupid, stupid stuff? (laughs) You can say stupid. Um, Look, just absolutely all the time. So one that comes to mind, and um, I won't name the guy, but it's just it's literally been hitting my email today. Uh, And I'm going to assume he doesn't listen to your podcast, otherwise I'm going to feel a bit bad. But let's do it anyway. Guy contacted me today, says, um, 
apparently I'm in the Ashley Madison data breach, not me, but him. He's in the Ashley Madison data breach. It wasn't him. Someone else signed him up. Uh, can I help him? <laughs> like this is so dog ate my homework. You know, like the number of times I had people contact me after the Ashley Madison data breach and say, so there's these search sites that say I'm in there, but I never created an account. It must have been someone else. And on the times I looked at it, it's like, you know, you're you're actually contacting me from the same IP address as what is stored in the data. <laughs> you know, or, oh, no. <laughs> or, or something ridiculous like that. You know, there's a payment record next to your account that's literally using a credit card with your name on it. It's like, <laughs> you, you can't lie to me about this stuff. I'm going to find out if, if I want to. And frankly, I don't particularly want to have the discussion with people about their online presences and adultery websites anyway, but... Yeah, it's stuff like that. And in fact, I call it the Ashley Madison defense now. Everyone, every time someone says, I wasn't in a data breach, so yeah, of course you went. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. Well, are, is there a good place for people to follow up and see what you're working on now? Is it all at pwn.com or? Well, most of what I do is is on troyhunt.com. So okay. troyhunt.com, I guess, is sort of the, the superset of all that. I'm pretty active on Twitter, uh, at troyhunt. And then, obviously, a, a lot of what I'm doing is have I been pwned. So you can go to haveibeenpwned.com, or one word, and you can check it out there as well. But, uh, yeah, blog and Twitter are sort of the entry points to everything these days. Awesome. Well, uh, the next segment of this show is picks. Do you have some things you want to shout out about on the show? Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now, and it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Yeah, pwned passwords, half a billion. <laughs> well, I'll I tell you what, and uh, I didn't, I, I try not to prepare for podcasts because I think it's actually more fun if we do it impromptu. Yeah. There, there was something that happened a couple of weeks ago, which I think is a really interesting pick, assuming this is just something that I think is interesting to people. Yep. There was uh, an incident where we saw thousands of websites around the world, uh, many of them government websites, suddenly serving up crypto miners to people. And this was a really, really curious case. And a, a mate of mine, Scott Helm, who we do a bunch of work with in the security space, uh, started seeing all of these sites serve up uh, the CoinHive crypto miner. It mines Monero coin in your browser. And, and what we learned is that there is a, a, a sort of an accessibility service uh, called Browse Allowed. And lots of government sites in particular, which need to be accessible for people mm -hmm. who may be, say, visually impaired, integrate this service. And, and the way you integrate the service, this is a good JavaScript story, actually. The way you integrate it is you include a JavaScript file from their origin. So it's literally like script tag, source, and then the Browse Allowed address. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the problem here is that you are effectively at runtime pulling a file of a third-party service and then just executing whatever's in it. 
Now, someone managed to slip some script into that source file, which embedded a cryptocurrency miner. And what this meant is that the thousands of different websites that were dynamically pulling this script from that source uh, suddenly started running it. And then, of course, the thousands of people going to the thousands of websites suddenly had crypto miners running. And there are some interesting morals of the story. So one of them is there's this sort of supply chain conundrum where we are so dependent on things that happen upstream. And we've seen issues with things like NPM before where uh, packages have been pulled or some things have been uh, maliciously and that filters down. It's even worse when it's like literally pulled out at load time uh, via an external script. So there's actually two really cool things that um, listeners, if you have not seen these things before, go and look at them. And there's a, a, a blog, uh, a post on my blog uh, about this, which would have gone out around about, I'd say, the 15th of Feb. And the, these two paradigms, which are super cool, is one of them is SRI, sub-resource integrity, which allows you to take your JavaScript file, create a hash of it, and then put that hash as an integrity attribute on your script tag. And then when the browser pulls this file in from another location, it hashes it, compares it to the one on your script tag, and if they match, it runs it. If they don't, it rejects it. So this is awesome. If you're embedding JavaScript from any other external host and that JavaScript file doesn't change, you should be doing that. And the other one that's super cool is content security policies or CSPs, where you can start to say, when my site runs, it can download scripts from these hosts and images from those hosts and fonts from these other ones, and that's it. And if it tries to pull down anything else from a non-whitelisted host, it gets blocked. And that stops stuff like this nasty Monero coin mining uh, stuff just absolutely outright. Because as soon as the browser tries to make request to CoinHive, it says, oh, there's a CSP. It hasn't whitelisted CoinHive. Can't load it. Yeah, so I I just think that was really awesome. Supply chain attacks, SRI, and CSP. Cool stuff. How do you stay current on all of the security stuff? I read a lot of Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) You you know what a lot of it is now? It's having a healthy following. There's a lot of people that pop up and say, hey, Troy, have you seen this or have you seen that? So there's there's not blogs I regularly read. I rarely even read the feeds of people I follow. I basically just stay on top of my mentions and, and things pop up onto there. And... The, the reality of it is as well, there's a bunch of stuff I'm not current on and someone will pop up and go, hey, did you see this? And it was a week ago or a month ago and I totally missed it. There's, there's just so much happening. That's just fascinating. The, the whole field is just fascinating to me. Yeah, look, it, it's a cool industry. And like I was saying earlier, I just never know what's going to happen. There are, There's such a, an interesting spread of people directly involved with this industry as well. I was uh, interstate a couple of days ago doing a talk to a, a bunch of people in suits and, and then I'll be online talking to a bunch of people in hoodies, right? And it's, <laughs> it's, it's just this massive spread of different people that have very different different approaches to security and, and frankly walk on different sides of the legal line as well. Uh, and, and that just makes it a very interesting space. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to jump in here with some picks. Um, my first pick is there's a movie out that I've really enjoyed. It's called The Greatest Showman. I don't know if you've seen it, Troy. Um, no, in my spare time, I should watch that. Yeah, it's uh, it's a musical. <laughs> it's it's really terrific. I took my daughter to see the sing along version. It's a you know because it's a musical, and we we've, we've been listening to the soundtrack pretty much nonstop over here at my house. And uh, the sing along version, like, so go watch the the movie, just the regular movie. And then listen to the soundtrack a few times and then go and then go to the sing along version and sing along. 
it was so much fun. I really, really enjoyed it. So uh, I'm going to pick that. And um, yeah, that's pretty much all I've got this this time around. I am probably gearing up for uh, JavaScript Remote Conf. So just go to jsremoteconf.com if you're uh, looking for some JavaScript content to help you stay current and all of that good stuff. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming, Troy. Yeah, my pleasure, Chuck. Good to be back, man. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up, and we will catch everybody next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.